Hello, EB Online Church family. Today is our EB at Home kickoff. So whether you're watching us from your home or someone else's, hey, wherever you are, thank you so much for making us part of your day. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we are attempting to answer the now what question. Political, economic, technological, social, philosophical, and spiritual changes are sweeping our society. So now what? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Often we become frozen. I mean, we just shut down, unsure of what to do next. We fail to react. Any of this sounding familiar for you? Have pajama pants become your go-to wardrobe? Does your daily routine now include binging eight hours of the West Wing on Netflix? Do you order something from Amazon because you enjoy playing practical jokes on the FedEx driver? I mean, if the upheaval brought on by the COVID virus has you feeling lost in a bizarre world, hey, you're in good spiritual company. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is alive and for 40 days he has been preparing 11 of his followers to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the rest of the world. And then, well, he leaves. I mean, he's gone. Look at verse 9. It says he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, if the resurrection was the most exciting moment for the disciples, I think that this was the most exciting moment for Jesus. Imagine leaving the body of pain to breathe the spiritual air of heaven. Victory has been achieved and he can go home. But what about the apostles? Well, now they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Now remember that Jesus told them to go into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the moment that the prophets had been pointing people to for centuries, when God's spirit would be poured out on all humanity. And here they are, I'm sure filled with utter amazement, watching as Jesus disappears from their sight. And then these two figures are standing there in their midst and basically tell them, look, you've got to get moving. Why are you here? It's time to take the pajama pants off and, and get going. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Now, these guys don't realize it, but in 10 days, they're going to be part of a foundational moment in the history of the world. They're going to help set in motion a movement, a, a spiritual paradigm shift whose impact on the world will reverberate throughout all eternity. In fact, you and I are here today gathered in homes, huddled on park benches because of what these guys are about to experience. Now, we often skip right over these next 10 days in, in order to get to the good stuff. Chapter two is coming and that's when all the action happens. And we get in such a hurry oftentimes that we rush right by what is a very crucial part of the story. What did they do? What did they do when they picked their jaws up off the ground and, and they leveled their eyes toward Jerusalem? They did not, as we're going to see, just sit around and, and passively wait. So go to scripture with me and let's begin reading in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." 
Guys, they are in survival mode. They are waiting around to do what Jesus told them. He said, I'm going to send you out into all the world to share the gospel. And they had to be absolutely terrified of this idea. So what do they do? Well, the text says that they joined together constantly in prayer. They sat down and constantly prayed. And the word constantly describes an obstinate, almost stubborn tenacity. When faced with a now what moment, they didn't put together a planning committee. They didn't rush to Amazon for the latest how to evangelize my neighbor scroll. They didn't get busy doing many of the things that we think we have to do when we don't know what to do. Instead, the apostles constantly, continually, and stubbornly prayed. And this is going to come back up time and time again. 31 times in 20 of the 28 chapters, right there in Acts, Luke, he mentions prayer. And it's not surprising if you think about it. If you want to learn about the prayer life of Jesus, well, just go to Luke's gospel. He draws attention to Jesus praying more than any other gospel writer. Luke had a deep faith in the power of prayer. And so he highlights how that every major moment, every big decision, every crisis, every time the church faced a now what moment, Luke in bold letters tells us that the people of God came together and they prayed. An uncertain tomorrow demanded that the apostles be prayerful today. And I have to think that if we're going to be disciples, and if we're going to live differently because Jesus lives eternally, if we are going to depend on the Spirit of God, then prayer must be an identity marker of our faith. A consistent faith is displayed by constant prayer. Now, I've heard it said that the spiritual history of the church can be written in its prayer life. Now, that's something for us to chew on a little while, isn't it? The spiritual history of our church, the history of your ministry, the history of your life, it's written down in your prayer life. Now, have you ever heard of a guy named Jeremiah Lamphere? Ever heard of him? Well, in 1857, he was a 46-year-old businessman living in New York City. And he felt that God was moving him to pray. America surely needed prayer at the time. The United States was in spiritual, political, and economic decline. Agitation over slavery was breeding political unrest, and civil war just seemed inevitable. Financial panic was gripping the country. Banks were failing. Railroads were going bankrupt. Factories were closing, and unemployment was increasing. I mean, what was a person to do? Well, Jeremiah printed up some flyers announcing a weekly noon prayer meeting for businessmen that would take advantage of the hour when businesses were closed for lunch. And the handbill that he had printed up read, prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock, stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole time as your time admits. And then on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857, he set up a signboard in front of the building where his prayer meeting would take place, and he went inside and began to pray. Now that first day, he prayed for about a half hour by himself. And by the end of the hour, six people had showed up. The next week, 20 people stopped by. And after 40 people showed up the third week, he decided to go from weekly prayer gatherings to daily meetings, and soon 100 people were showing up each day. Now, even some, some preachers from around town began attending, and, and then they went back to their home churches, and they started daily prayer meetings. And within six months, an estimated 10,000 people in New York City we're getting together every day to pray. All because one person 
said, would you like to pray with me? It was the nucleus of what would be termed the Great Awakening, a time when estimated two million people in this country turned to God. I wonder, does God ever put a burden on your heart to pray? Are you even open to that idea? Do you even think in those terms? If so, well, do you? I mean, do you pray? And would you be willing to invite others to join with you? You know, during a time when our nation, our, our city, our neighborhoods are experiencing spiritual, political, economic, and physical turmoil, we need consistent faith displayed by constant prayer. And, and guys, we must be stubborn. We must be stubborn in this because our ministries and, and personal lives tend to drift toward prayerlessness. Hey, I suppose that there are a lot of reasons why we struggle to pray. We say we're too busy or we're too preoccupied. We, we just feel like we're talking to the ceiling sometimes. We don't know what to say. Or maybe we just wonder if God is actually going to listen to me. I mean, me, really. But I think the reason for our lack of prayer is, I think it's actually pretty straightforward. We struggle to pray because well, we struggle to believe. We struggle to believe that God is real, that he listens, that he cares, that he can do something, that he even wants to do something. You see, if we really believed in an omnipresent, omnipotent creator of the universe who impacts and empowers our very life, who loved us enough to sacrifice himself so that we could be in relationship with him, why wouldn't we pray? I mean, why wouldn't we stubbornly, obstinately, continually pray? Well, we would if we believe. You know, in Acts chapter 1, there's just not a lot of believers. When you continue reading in verse 15, it says that in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a, a group numbering about 120. I mean, think about how much ta tangible impact Jesus had. The entire area of Palestine at that time had a population of around 4 million. That means one for every 33,000 people living in the region showed up that day. Now, now, I don't think this number necessarily reflects the total number of believers, but I want you to get an idea of how insignificant the followers of Jesus must have felt. What do you do when you're the outsider? What do you do when you feel inferior? When it seems as if the whole world is against you? Well, how about praying? Peter said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, I want to make sure you see the, the human drama and emotion here. Peter's saying, look, he's one of us. Think about it. Who are you hurt by the most? Who disappoints you the most? It's those that you're closest to often that, that hurt you the most, right? It's friends, it's, it's fellow Christians, it's family. That there is no greater hurt than when family lets you down. And you can tell that Peter, he's not hiding the disappointment and the pain. I mean, how would you feel? You've shared everything together. You, you, you've traveled together. You were roommates. You ate together. You heard the same message, witnessed the same miracles. And only Jesus knew how Judas had cloaked the true nature of his heart. Just imagine the shock that you would have. And imagine the stain on Jesus' reputation. I mean, wasn't it Jesus that, that chose Judas? I mean, if he was God, shouldn't he have known better? I mean, how embarrassing is that? So how would you feel? Hurt? Angry? 
bitter, maybe hopeless or powerless. But because we have such high expectations of people that we live and, and worship with, it hurts, right? So here's my question. Now what? What are you going to do about that hurt? You know, this group was trying to, to process one of the greatest tragedies that they have ever experienced. And I want you to see what they did. Because we have got to learn how to move on with God. Because if we don't, if we allow the tragedies and the disappointments and the bitterness to fester in our hearts, if we allow the anger to take hold, then it will keep us from, from bringing fruits for God. And we will battle against the love that God has poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I think it's a pandemic within the church. Person after person, unsure of how or if even to continue walking with the Lord. So how did these first believers move on? Well, Peter reminded the group what happened to Judas. And, and then he said, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Now, this is really important. Peter looked at what had happened and, and then he pivoted back to the sovereignty of God. He recognized Judas' actions as being part of a greater story, the story of God's redemption. So he recalls portions of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 and basically tells the 120 believers that the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, why did Peter quote these few texts? He's attempting to remind them He's attempting to remind the eyes who are looking at him to answer the now what question that God saw this coming. He's reminding them and us that, that in all things, God is in control. I mean, how does knowing that help? How does knowing that God is in control help you in moments like this? If you find yourself at an impasse because of pain and hurt, well, a practical way to look at this is to say that that God is a great counterpuncher. God is a great counterpuncher. You see, in a fight, after the other guy, well, after he throws the punch, well, he potentially leaves himself vulnerable. And, and you have to know how to, how to dodge, and then you recognize the opening, and, and then you land the punch of your own. Now, look, your adversary, that, that roaring lion who seeks to devour you, will destroy your life if you allow him to. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. But when you invite God into your corner, God, well, he does the fighting for you. You never stand in the ring alone. And, and though you might not be very capable, God is. And here's the thing. God has never lost a fight. The greatest moment of hope for all of us was the cross. But was that a wonderful, happy moment? Of course not, right? At that moment, Satan thought he had won. And I don't know how all the spiritual dynamics worked, but but Satan set the events in motion, and in the end, he got more than he bargained for. Three days later, when he thought he had killed Jesus and finished it all off, God raised Jesus from the dead, and there was the counterpunch. So if God, if God can take the worst moment in history and turn it for good, then he can take the worst moment in your life. He can take the minor injustices that are important to you. And he can turn them. Scripture says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's in Romans chapter eight. And I want to know, do you believe this? 
I mean, do you really believe that God is working in the midst of your pain, your tragedy, your uncertainty, your loss? You see, that passage continues by saying, if God is for us, well, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? If, if God would give up his son, what is he going to withhold? Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is for you? If so, then I want you to fight for that moment. Even when you stumble, God is in the ring. And when Satan takes a punch at you and, and he might hit you hard and you might stagger and you might even drop to your knees, God is going to come around and Satan will always be vulnerable to God. And God is going to counterpunch and he will always win that battle. And that's what Peter is doing right here. As they were dealing with the tragedy and disappointment of being betrayed by one of their own, Peter was reminding them that even though they had watched Jesus disappear from view, well, God was still in their midst. No disappointment is too great for you. Do you believe that God can take what was meant to hurt you and turn it somehow in the grand scheme of things into your benefit? If you believe this, then you pray. A consistent faith leads to constant prayer. So for the next 10 days, will you commit to setting aside a time in your day where you will, either alone or with others, stubbornly pray? Will you stubbornly pray for the pain, loss, grief, and fear that's gripping our communities? Will you stubbornly pray for the leaders of all the political parties? Will you stubbornly pray for the removal of an invisible virus? Will you stubbornly pray for our teachers and students? Will you stubbornly pray for our faith communities? Will you stubbornly pray that men, women, and children will turn to the Lord in faith? Will you stubbornly pray for an end to injustice and apathy and racism? Will you stubbornly pray for, for God's kingdom to become more important than man's kingdoms? Will you stubbornly pray? Because who knows? Perhaps God wants to begin another great awakening through you. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody.